0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV.
1: Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces all the shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them pretty unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America and the world are looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzero foundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help, and we deeply appreciate it.
0: Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Aria Cohen-Wade. We're on TV, and my guest today is Glenn Lowry. I'm sure everyone knows who Glenn Lowry is. I'll ask him anyway to uh, briefly introduce himself. I'm Glenn Lowry. I'm
1: professor of economics at Brown University and host of The Glenn Show at BloggingHeads.TV, colleague of Aria's.
0: Uh, well, Glenn, thank you for for coming uh, back on. I think you were on a year or so ago, um, yeah. and, and we've talked about a couple of things over the years. And so uh, I wanted to talk to you. You know, I've been uh, listening to all your recent episodes, and there's a couple uh, topics I want to discuss. Uh, and the first one is, um, I guess, you know, the main topic consuming all of our lives, which is the election. And um, and I wanted you to answer this question, if you could: uh, Does Donald Trump deserve to be reelected?
1: Okay. So it's the Donald Trump question. And I have a pat answer to the Donald Trump question. When people ask me, who am I going to vote for? I say Joe Biden, of course. But you shouldn't believe me. And then I have a little uh, logical uh, argument that I make, which is, if I were going to vote for Trump, do you think a guy like me, look, I'm a college professor, I I value uh, my friendships and my relationships and whatnot, do you think I'd ever tell you? So. My answer is going to be the same regardless who I'm going to vote for. Therefore, you learn nothing from my answer. So my answer is I'm voting for Biden. And your reaction to my answer should be to not change whatever you thought prior to me answering
0: that I was going to do. But he <laughs> deserve to be uh, reelected? Yeah, slightly different <laughs> question. I mean, you know, it, uh, there's always the personal, you know, the personal preference, personal vote. But of course, you know, any one vote is inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, uh, so, you know, one person could let's, vote either way or let's stay let's home. Spot. It doesn't really matter. Well, what do you I'm think he respond. deserves reelection?
1: I'm sorry. People are going to say I'm dodging because I want to respond not by giving a personal preference, but rather by parsing the argument. I mean, that is to say he he doesn't deserve to be re-elected. He's unfit. Uh, he's a loose cannon. Uh, he's a racist. Uh, he's uh, 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 under the sway of uh, foreign uh, power. Uh, he's uh, self-aggrandizing. He's uh, without empathy. He's an idiot. Not a, you know. If I thought all those things were true, it wouldn't be hard to answer the question, does he deserve to be reelected? So to me, it's interesting to ask, how can anybody say anything other than no to that question? What what could possibly be the grounds for saying, yes, he does deserve to be elected? As you know, a large number of Americans believe to be the case. Uh, it would appear not to be a plurality of Americans at the moment, but there are uh, many Americans who think so. What could be the case for Trump? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, why am I doing this? Why am I not just simply saying, no, he doesn't deserve to be reelected? Come on, next question. <laughs> uh, because I think our discourse, I mean, RAI, I'd like to know what you think about this. I think our discourse is distorted. I i, I think uh, the... Uh, Hysteria—the anti-Trump hysteria—has really harmed American politics. It's harmed American journalism. Uh, it, it's, it's bad for the country and it's bad for the soul. <laughs> I think the—that uh, that sounds like,
0: well. That sounds part. like a case to vote for Biden. If 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 the rea- if Trump and the reaction to Trump combined is bad for the American soul, that, that seems like one reason to vote for Biden. And a, a theme I've been talking about on the show for a year or more is um, a return to normalcy. You know that was. Um, the uh, 1920 campaign slogan of Harding or Coolidge, whichever, whichever one it, it was who, who wanted and then and, and died. But, um, you know, just let's get things back to normal. We've had a lot of craziness over the past three and a half, four years. Let's, let's just, you know, w- tone things down a little bit and let's go back to kind of just boring, boring politics once again. I, that may be Biden's strongest
1: argument, actually. Uh, certainly that is an argument. Uh, and, and I get it. Although there's a part of me, that, uh, I mean, you know, there's a part of me that thinks the following, the people who hate Trump unreasoningly have created a circumstance to wit, the Mueller investigation, the impeachment, uh, which has uh, basically held American government hostage to their hatred, Uh, not entirely so, but very substantially so. Uh, And if I were to buy this argument, well, they'll stop throwing their tantrum if we just get this guy out of office. In a way, I'm ceding to them uh, way more control over, if I thought this, if I thought that the press had uh, really were, quote unquote, fake in the sense of having an agenda, being politicized, not serving the interests of the American public, but serving their own coastal elites, protecting the status quo, anti-Trump, the insurgent who's coming in, speaking for people like me. And the the voice I'm trying to give, the sentiment I'm trying to give voice to here is people who are pro-gun uh, people who distrust uh, uh, federal power, uh, people who are pro-life, uh, people who think Black Lives Matter sucks and they like the cops, people who don't mind the idea that you're going to rebuild the military, people who think there should be a border and are not uh, intimidated by being called racist because they want to have control over what the demographic composition of their country is going to be 50 or 100 years down the road, people who are Christians, etc. There are a lot of there are conservative evangelical Christians. There are a lot of people... Uh, for whom the antipathy to Trump is really a kind of rejection of their worldview. And if I were one of those people, uh, the argument, well, let's vote for Biden because we'll get back to normalcy. The uh, SHIT storm will quiet. Uh, We'll be able to feel okay about our government again. I mean, that is like blackmail. That's that's like if, if I were one of these people who saw value in the things that Trump were trying to do, that argument feel, would feel to me like we'll stop blowing it up as soon as you uh, cede to us control over the uh, over the agenda of American government. And um, if I were one of those people, I, I, I'd reject that argument. I haven't declared myself to be one of those people because I'm interested in a future. I want to be loved. But, <laughs> but we know that there are many such people. I don't know what you think of this argument, Ari. You think I'm, I'm blowing smoke here?
0: Well, I, I mean, okay, certainly there's you know some percentage of – American voters, 35 to 45 percent, who are just essentially conservatives or Republicans, and they would vote. For whoever the conservative or Republican person is in almost any circumstance. I mean, a lot of them voted for Donald Trump, so that shows that there's maybe not, there's very few circumstances where they wouldn't vote for, for just whoever's put up. And it's the same with the Democrat. Like they'll, the, the, like whatever they say, they'll basically just vote for, for the Democrat. And, you know, for some of those people care deeply about politics. Some of them are maybe don't really think about politics that much, but they have a certain few issues that they care about, or they just consider z- themselves a Democrat or a Republican because it's part of their identity and that's who they are and so they kind of always vote for that like that and then they don't really think about politics for a lot of the time and I, I think you know there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there who um kind of have uh political thoughts that don't align with the way that pundits and political science professors think about things As kind of incoherent ideas or uh they just don't like i like I, I've referenced this at least a dozen times. Chris Hayes, before he was famous, he wrote an article about knocking on doors for John Kerry in 2004. I think I ran in the nation. And he said he, he, there was a woman who, um, uh, answered the door and she said, I don't like Bush, but I just can't vote for Kerry. And he said, Chris asked her why and she said, I don't trust lawyers. Um, so that's a kind of, you know, apolitical belief, you know, nonsense or not that some percentage of people who are like undecided voters or apolitical hold. And it's just like, this guy seems nice, he seems mean, I don't believe him, he seems an asshole or something, and so that's how, like, that's their politics. So all that, like, is happening all the time. Um, (laughs) Putting that aside, you have, like, the actual person of President Donald Trump and and his performance over the past three and a half years, and I would say it's been a bad performance. I mean, you know, there's the, (laughs) you know, can can we say it's objectively a bad performance? Um, Hard to say, you know, there's how bad the coronavirus outbreak has been in the U.S. versus Canada or, you know, other countries of Western Europe or something, or how the economy is doing, unemployment rate, that kind of stuff. Um, And then what are the, like, goals that Trump has set out to do and accomplish? So putting conservatives on the federal judiciary would be, like, a a goal he set out to do and accomplished. Um, And something like uh, locking up Hillary Clinton would be a goal that he set out, he claimed to do, or at least rhetorically said he was going to do, and that hasn't happened, or you know, taking on the deep state or something, uh, if that was something you could actually do. That doesn't seem to have happened. Or building a wall on the Mexican border. Like, uh, some some amount of the wall has been built, but, you know, the entire thing has not, has not been built. And certainly Mexico hasn't paid for it. So, you know, you can judge in that ways. Or just, yeah, or sort of the, he's a moron, he's an asshole, he's a racist, he doesn't know what he's doing, he's, um, you know, he's a clown, that, that kind of thing. Which, is, I guess, <laughs> I, I fall, I'll say I'll fall within the, this camp. I, I do want to bring up, you, you mentioned how, you know, people on the other side are driven to distraction by Trump, and um, I see this often in the comments, especially to uh, your videos. And this is called uh, Trump derangement syndrome, and people refer to it so often that they just call it TDS. Um, it's a, you know, it's become a shorthand. They say this guy has TDS or something. So someone like uh, Harold Pollack or uh, Josh Cohen, who comes on your show, they'll say this guy has TDS or it's been uh, thrown at me. A- at some point, and I think, you know, this probably goes back to, I should have researched this before, but this probably goes back to, like, Clinton. I think Clinton derangement syndrome was a thing, and then Bush derangement syndrome was a thing, and then Obama derangement syndrome was a thing, and, and then we have Trump derangement syndrome. So at least, you know, 25, 30-ish years, there have been um, this idea that the the president is just, like, driving the other side crazy, and they'll believe anything, or they'll do anything, they hate him so much. So that's kind of become a, uh, more or less a part of politics, but, like, you know, are, like, are are we... I don't know. I don't. I don't feel particularly deranged. I, 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 I do like pretty much oppose everything Trump is and stands for, but uh, trying to do it in a common and, and measured way. And I'm not um
1: well, well, let me ask
0: screen. You. But but I, but he, but yes. I so but this you. is this is, is part of politics now. Is is you know usually the, the you know there were a lot of people who really went crazy because of Barack Obama. I mean, and said and said or did crazy things and believed crazy things, like he was born in Kenya or had a secret father. Or, you know, was like a crypto Islamist or crypto Marxist or something. So lots of people on the right went crazy because of Obama and lots of people on the right or lots of people on the left, you know, have been driven to distraction because of because of Trump. And I I, I would think that Trump is more justified. You know, the people who are reacting against Trump are more justified in this. But, you know, it, ha- it does happen uh, on both sides. I'm trying to ask you a question, Irea, uh,
1: which is, OK, we had the Mueller investigation uh, of alleged uh, improprieties in the way in which Trump was handling uh his office uh and in which the campaign was conducted what's your take at the end of the day uh about that um did Adam Schiff and uh company uh, basically have it right about Trump and that he and that he got off i mean should we be concerned that the president of the united states really has
0: been compromised by foreign power well uh, what not well through the whole thing i kind of thought like the whole, you know, these, these people are too, these people being Trump and his family, you know, Don Jr. was involved in it, and his campaign manager and stuff, these people are too stupid to be really tied up in a grand international conspiracy. It seems like there was some sort of attempt by Russia to get Trump to do something, and um, whether it worked or not, unclear, maybe we'll, maybe we'll never know. Um, well, but I would say probably different. not. But, but I would say the, kind of the, there's the base level corruption that happens, kind of, under any administration, and then there's the New level of corruption that Trump has put in because he owns all these hotels and golf courses. That's a separate subject. Where people are staying. And then there's all the corruption that Trump was involved with as a private citizen and businessman in New York City real estate. I think that is the real – I I actually do think – and this will drive the commenters crazy, I'm sure. I actually do think Trump is going to end up in jail and it's going to be because of stuff he did uh, before he became president uh, regarding his tax returns or other shady dealings in Manhattan real estate. I mean Manhattan real estate is – you know, Like, if you, if a bunch of prosecutors who had a strong incentive to uh, look at someone in, in, involved in Manhattan real estate did so, they would find some stuff that was pretty shady involving uh, either uh, organized crime or, you know, foreign uh, people from other countries who are buying property in order to launder their money. Uh, that's very common in Manhattan real estate. So I, I think that's going to happen. And I think there's going to be a strong incentive for people like the uh, state attorney general of New York to pursue that kind of stuff, whether or not he gets. Trump gets some kind of pardon or self-pardon oh, or whatever. He wins the election, I assume. Right. So, yeah. So, I but, I mean, you know, who knows what can happen, whether you can indict a president. It's never been tried, really. But I don't think he's going to win. I think he is going to face trial uh, for pre-presidential corruption. And that's kind of the, you know, Al Capone uh, tax avoidance, you know, way, uh, way the, of getting it. You know, what am I getting at here? What I'm getting at is... From the position
1: of someone who actually uh, had some uh, a positive view about the Trump uh, presidency, the uh, efforts of Democrats to hamstring it from the very beginning, uh, including uh, involvement of so-called deep state uh, efforts to undermine the presidency, are uh, are demonstrable. They're hoping that uh, this uh, uh, U.S. attorney, uh, I'm sorry, I forget his name now, that Barr has appointed to look into the uh, you know, uh, the investigating of the investigators uh, coming yeah, with uh, uh, indictments yeah. before the election. That, that doesn't, doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem like that's going to that play out. Um, but, but in any case, it does it not look in retrospect? Think of all the bombshell stories. This is it. Walls are closing in on Trump. We have proof about this meeting. We have proof about that. I mean, it all came to naught. It all came to absolutely zilch, it would appear, uh, Paul Manafort, et cetera, notwithstanding. Uh, or the impeachment. Well, there a lot of – so there's is a lot of people – a lot that, of people
0: associated that, with that, Trump. A chopped up political assassination attempt and whatnot? I don't think so. I mean a lot of people associated with Trump have uh, either, you know, pled guilty, gone to jail, or been pardoned uh, before they could go to jail. Uh, and a number of his – you know, how many – I think of he's had four campaign managers and three of them, through of the four, have been indicted for, for various things, Manafort, Lewandowski, and Pascal. Um And – uh, I'm sure the commenters will fact check me on that if I if I have those stats wrong. Kelly yeah, Conway is still unindicted as far as we know. But um, I, th- I mean, let's let's go back to early 2009. You know, the Democrats controlled uh, the presidency and both houses of Congress, and there was this huge um, economic calamity unfolding. And Obama wanted to put through a stimulus act, and I believe three Republicans combined voted for it. Of you know the 250 or so. In Congress, So it was complete opposition from the get-go, and and the same thing happened in 2017. It was complete opposition from the get-go. They had the Republicans controlled um, the House and the Senate and the presidency, and what was the first thing you wanted to do? Uh, Pass Paul Ryan's tax cut. And that wasn't what Trump campaigned on. That was what Paul Ryan wanted to do. And Trump didn't write that bill. Paul Ryan did. And they got that, and then they tried to repeal Obamacare and failed. And there hasn't really been a lot of legislative big legislative things since then because Trump doesn't particularly care about any of this stuff and he doesn't know how to jawbone people or assemble okay. coalitions or, or, or anything like that. So, I mean, but there's so much of the Trump presidency that's, like, performative and him saying something crazy or acting in some goofy way and that distracts everyone or, yeah, uh, bombshell, big meeting, whatever. Uh, so a lot of stuff has, on both sides, has sort of proved to be nothing. And here we are, you know, the 215,000 or whatever Americans are dead of, COVID, Trump himself and his close family members and associates contracted the disease through... um uh, that's yes. Trump's
1: fault? It's Trump's fault that 215,000 are dead? How many
0: would be dead if Biden had been president? Well, obviously, there's no way to know. I we mean, we, we can't run it the other way. way. It would be less. Pardon? I think you have to say it would be less. Um, uh, why do I have to say that? Because, that's not well, I mean, look at I mean, you could look at other countries uh, that did a somewhat better job, such as Canada. Pro- Canada's probably the closest country geographically and... And otherwise, the difference difference is
1: the president of the United States. The difference between the U.S. and Canada doesn't have
0: something to do with the very different character of our two societies. Well, having comparing uh, presidents, having a federal system makes it harder. There's 50 states that are coordinating these things. Any sort of you know more direct system, uh, I don't really know how the provinces and the the
1: the federal government and a different decision by Cuomo about what to do with people coming from hospitals to nursing homes would have meant maybe tens of thousands of people who would not have died
0: Oh yeah. Cuomo, Cuomo, the Cuomo ha- a did a bad job system. Cuomo did That's a bad job saying. early on I would say but he, uh, but he had the sort of performative um, you know quality that enabled him to seem like he knew what he was talking about and he was in charge whereas Trump never really seems like he knows that. what he's talking about or he's in charge uh, so let, th- let, so let me he say this he was uh, able to, uh, Cuomo uh, was able uh, to fake uh,
1: his way through let, because let me of say this persona. please Trump fucked it up okay Trump's bluster, Trump's, uh, oh, this is nothing that's going to blow over. Trump's pushing pins aside and uh, seizing the microphone at those uh, daily briefings, uh, degenerating into these shouting matches. Trump's uh, ego, I mean, he, he messed it up. He did not lead well during the pandemic. I agree with that. So
0: that's a pretty I big, I mean, this that. is the biggest global crisis since that, 1945.
1: Undoubtedly, one consequence of that is that some people died who might not have died. I don't dispute that. I don't think you uh, shoot generals when they give a bad order in the heat of combat and soldiers end up dying. I don't say that the president has blood on his hands because he might have been more effective as a leader during a national crisis. Well, I, say, I, I think you vote him I out. I mean, this, that, that, this is not don't change horses in the street. But, but I just want to get this in. I don't see anything to inspire my confidence that a Democrat in the White House rather than a Republican would have materially changed the course of this seismic event, which has befallen the world, not just the United States, and which is out of the control of any particular person, it would appear to me, should he put on a mask? Yeah, he should put on a mask. With him putting on a mask, it, it, anyway. So well, you see what I,
0: again, there's, we can't run the we can't run the tape backwards and no, uh, we can just look at other countries. You know, there's lots of different reasons why South Korea done such a good job. Pro- it seems to me it's probably the mask. Like they had this culture that if you're sick in general, you know. You, you wear a mask if, you go, if you're going outside. So it seems like the, the the masks were a huge a huge thing that sadly became a culture war totem, and now people are fighting about it. Trump contributed to that. He made fun of Biden for wearing a really big Agreed. mask at the debate, um, and then you know he may have been COVID positive at that debate. It's absurd. So you know Trump's you know I mean Trump. <laughs> there was no person in the world who could have been more protected from this virus than Donald Trump if he if he wanted to be. And yet he got it and gave it to his wife and his son and a number of his close associates. Um, uh, thankfully, uh, none of them have, have died because of this, but uh, we know uh, many Americans have. So it, I, I just think Biden is Biden is more or less a normal politician, more or less a normal human. Trump is not a normal politician, talk, not a normal human.
1: Can we, we, we talk about the election. Let's talk about Biden. Mm-hmm. What has he got going for him? Why are the he's, p- not Why? he's not Trump? That's what he got going for. In his basement, I haven't seen him in weeks. I wonder if he's actually alive. He looks like an avatar to me.
0: He, lo- he looks like a man going through the motions. Did I you mean, w- did you watch the first there? debate? Did you well, watch the first debate? Who is Joe Biden? <laughs> uh, I if you watch the first debate, you would know that Trump accused him of uh, accurately of being in public life for forty-seven years and having done nothing. So we know who he is. He's a moderate Democrat from the state of Delaware, which means he's did the bidding of the credit card industries for a number of years and he's from Scranton, Pennsylvania and he's an old man and he's lost a step or two over the years because he's 77 years old and he's more or less going to govern as the moderate Democrat that, that he always was. Um, and we wish him good health. Uh, and th- and that's what I would <laughs> say. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's, he's not a radical okay. Obama added him to the ticket to ba- to balance, you know, to be a White man with white hair, and also to be an ideological balance because he was seen as, you know, he's he's more towards the center of the party, and yes. and that's that's who he is. So he's not, you know, you could they could have run this who is this man, who is this woman kind of thing against you know Andrew Yang or Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or something, but like it doesn't work against Biden. He's he's been in public life for half a century. We know he is, and they, so the only thing they had to run against him was he's senile, and they try that, and Trump tried that in the first debate, he tried to trip him up by interrupting him and acting goofy or crazy, or whatever. It didn't it largely didn't work. I thought Biden did fine in the first debate. And the second debate got canceled for, you know, strange reasons. Maybe there'll be a third debate. We don't know. So I think, I mean, the, the only play they had was to say, this guy is not capable of doing the job because he is senile. That was the only argument they have left. They can't make it because he's not actually fully senile. Like, he's a little, he's lost a step. He's a little slow, but he is he's not demented or anything. He doesn't get confused about where he is. And so he is going to be a less, uh, you know, that's active and less intense president. Area.
1: That's a pretty low bar.
0: I mean, in the Trump you know, era. He knows where he is
1: at any given point in time. In but but I take your point. We know who he is. Uh, he is the guy that he is. He's in the center of the party. He's got a long career. It's normalcy. Trump is crazy. We're going to get back to something that's more or less, uh, that's more or less normal. Uh, so, okay. I mean,
0: <laughs> the thing is, I, I think, you know, I've been saying return to normalcy for a year or more. Sadly, so many things have happened this year that make it very unlikely that the country will return to normalcy anytime soon. Mainly the coronavirus and also the racial uprisings.
1: Let let me let me channel a voter. I'm in Florida. I'm 70 years old. I don't care what color I am. Let me be Latino. Um, I I just saw what happened after George Floyd got killed. I saw uh, the demonstrations. I saw the protests, and I saw the riots. Uh, and I saw the remarks that were being made. I saw what came out of academia. I saw what came out of the liberal media. Uh, I saw what came out of the activists. Uh, and I saw what came out of the administration. I saw what came from the conservatives. I saw what came from Trump. I'm with the cops. I think this this uh, claim that America is an intrinsically racist society is absolutely bogus. That's not the country that I know, and it's not the country that I love. I think the people who are pushing it who write the op-ed pages, who give the lectures and teach the classes in the colleges and who man the barricades at these protests slash riots uh, are what's wrong with America, not what's right with America. Yes, I'm conservative with a small C in that respect. And you know what? Biden's in the pockets of these people. I was on a tirade (laughs) on behalf of this brother, this Latino brother in Florida who's 60 years old and he's getting ready to pull the lever for Trump because he looked at what happened after George Floyd And he asked himself, whose side am I on in this conflict about the future of my country? I think the cops, by and large, are doing a really tough job and they're doing it well. I like the fact that the president has the endorsement of all these uh, law enforcement agency uh, representatives. Uh, I like the way he talks about this issue. When I see Biden uh, behind him, I see Black Lives Matter. And uh, while they may have a beef or two that wants to be considered, on the whole, the, the tenor of that movement rubs me the wrong way. Uh, so i'm i 'm pro american and i 'm looking for a kind of leadership that affirms my values and in the aftermath of these lootings and riots and whatnot, I see that coming more from the right than I do from the left. What do you say to that guy
0: i mean that I think that guy probably would have voted conservative Republican trump you know before if George floyd had ever been killed um so he's not that, that person so he's, he he's not he 's not a persuadable voter, but what I would say is You know, Biden, uh, one of the architects of the 1994 uh, crime bill, which put, you know, 100,000 more police officers on the street. You know, he's a law and order guy going back to the 70s. And then I would say, I mean, this is the more complicated argument. You know, who is going to who who has more chance of tamping down the sort of emotions that lead people to gather in the streets to protest that might break out into a riot? Is it Trump or is anyone in the world who's not Trump? Um, You know, with these with these, if Marco Rubio had been president, and then George Floyd had been killed slash murdered in the way he was, like, I think the protests probably would have played out somewhat differently because there, w- there would have been less anger towards a Marco Rubio president because he's more of a minute.
1: politician. When Barack Obama was president and the stuff went down in Ferguson and in Baltimore. But, that,
0: but those things stayed in those places. I mean, that was what was different about what happened this year is that something happened in Minneapolis, and suddenly protests are happening all around the country. So, so something Trump? was different.
1: You're blaming Trump for Portland? You're blaming blaming Trump for Kenosha was are Blaming Trump. Well, for – Well, yeah. I mean,
0: this, it's you know, I think part of it is the coronavirus and the fact that people were pent up and stayed in their houses for months. And then there's all this energy um, sure. ready to burst. And then part of it was, yeah, everyone, a lot of people on the liberal left side have been radicalized by by Trump. I mean, you know, the same way that. There were people on the right who were radicalized by Obama to become like Tea Party Patriots or something. There are people on the left who are more or less normal people, and then Trump came into office and they, you know, moved further towards an extreme direction. So let's let's tamp down everything. You know, let's let's go back towards regular politics, and then and then the average the average marcher out in the streets, um, you know, someone who was marching for Black Lives Matter, maybe they're still there. But they're probably – if President Joe Biden is in office, they're probably going to be less likely to say, oh, yeah, that guy throwing the brick through the window, I'm on his side. They're probably going to say, wait, this is kind of fucked up. I'm going to go home now.
1: Okay. I disagree. I think you're (laughs) uh, living in a dream. I think, as a matter of fact, uh, there would be very little discernible difference based on the uh, political party of the person in the White House as to whether or not the people coming from those housing projects and those tenements on the west side of Chicago – who went to North Michigan Avenue's Magnificent Mile and trashed it, broke open windows and walked into boutiques and carried out arms full of stuff, and then had Black Lives Matter activists saying they were uh, simply uh, liberating these uh, uh, resources because they uh, had a legitimate claim against society. Uh, I see no reason to think that that kind of activity, which is not driven by presidential politics, but is driven by, the character of the political and social reality on the streets of cities like that would change were Biden in the office. I think it would be fewer white uh, residents of Jackson, New Hampshire, where I like to go for weeks at a, a special bed and breakfast up there, marching on the roadside where there are no black people at all. Fewer white kids marching out there with signs saying Black Lives Matter if Biden were president. I agree with that. But they'd be just as intense, just as vicious, Uh, just as uh, uh, destructive of the civil fiber of the urban America of Chicago and Philadelphia and Los Angeles and whatnot. Those riots were all over the country. Those people are just waiting for an excuse to blow off and it doesn't matter who's in the White House. I just want to offer that as a counterpart.
0: Okay, well, let me... I I actually have an anecdote that that, um, I wanted to share on this program but I haven't had an excuse, which... So I have a friend um, who lives in uh, New York City and a white woman, and she was at... The protest that started in Union Square, you know, like day three or four of the protest that marched up um, Fifth Avenue or whatever, uh, breaking windows and and taking stuff. And obviously she didn't go to that protest thinking this is going to become like a mass looting uh, situation. And she was so she described to me what happened. So this is, you know, I'm relating a story. Someone else told me. So I'll tell you with the grain of salt. But I believe what she said. Um, so the protests are going and then. Uh, You know, there were groups of of teenage boys, mostly uh, black and Latino teenage boys, and they started um, smashing the windows of stores where they wanted to take stuff. And that was stores like the Nike store and the other kind of things that like teenage boys would want. And then they ran in and but it wasn't that many and they didn't really know what they're doing. So they came out and they just started handing out the shoes, the boxes of shoes or whatever, and they went to like the Yankee store and smashed it, and, she, and my friend was like staying on the edge of this, walking along. So she said a couple of things. One, she said, the police were nowhere to be found, and she said, early on, if the police had just come and scattered everyone, it would have stopped. So who you know, the police, so who knows what you can make of that. Um, and then the other thing was that, yeah, these kids weren't like, oh, now's my, finally, I've been like thinking, like for like for years, I can, I can steal a TV or something, and now's my chance. So it was kind of like, you know, the, the rule of law seemed to be suspended, so let's, it's a street party kind of thing. And they, you know, and the fact that they were just handing out the shoes didn't mean like, I want, I want 50 pairs of shoes or I'm going to sell a bunch of shoes tomorrow. It's like, you know, fuck everything. Take some shoes. And they went, and they like went all the way up to Macy's. This is the one, the Macy's in Herald square. And, um, and so Uh,
1: the attacks on cops, the throwing of bricks and, uh, Bottles of frozen water, the the uh, gunfire on cops, well,
0: well, the assassinations of cops. Well, what do you? I mean, what do you make of of the I just told? I mean, it kind of it seems like setting a, fires from like a sociologist's point of view or oh, stuff. Well, okay, I'll, I'll credit what you just said. You know, the you psychology know,
1: psychology of collective action. Yeah. The, so the kids. So maybe a there lot are of some kids, kids just be swept along, but that's not a, a, a comprehensive characterization of what actually happened. Well,
0: happens. I mean, so the the further along that the sense of disorder goes, the more I guess the more risk people are willing to take, or or the more extreme people are willing to act but i'll just say once again you know biden is not you know the the, the candidate of black lives matter i'm sure if people who identify with black lives matter and we ask them who they voted for it wasn't joe biden and you know biden won because he won older african-american voters in the southern primaries and that that was really his you know like firewall and then he ended up running away with it so you know biden what biden is the most centrist candidate of the 27 or so people who are running, and it turns out he won. I mean, compare that to 2016 when we say Trump is the most extreme of the 20 or so candidates running, and he won. So that shows the difference between the Democratic base and the Republican I'm this, base. I'm
1: this guy in Florida that I was talking about, and he's getting ready to concede to you that Biden is not the candidate of Black Lives Matter, but he's going to retort – However, as between the two candidates in front of me, the one who is more sympathetic to Black Lives Matter is Joe Biden. The one who's more sympathetic to the cops is Donald Trump.
0: I'm voting for the one who's more sympathetic to the cops. Okay. I, I think that's, you know, I don't think that's a crazy, crazy way to think. I think if you say, you know, what do, what do, what really would ensure peace and law and order in the cities? Is it the Trump approach or the Biden approach? I would say it's more likely to be the Biden approach. I mean, well, one thing that has that did surprise me. Okay, when once the violence started from these protests, I was thinking, well, this is going to be bad for Biden. You know, violence in the streets. It's mostly uh, black people causing the violence. Uh, this is the Fox News producer's dream. This is this will rile up the type of people you, you were describing, and this will this is really going to swing things towards Trump. And it didn't. And why is that? Well, maybe people are actually blaming Trump for the entire thing because whatever happens in the country somehow gets blamed on the incumbent president. And maybe there are people who kind of like agree with (laughs) with the Black Lives Matter uh, basic argument that, you know, a lot there's a lot of things wrong with this country. But, you know, or maybe like Trump just isn't a good enough demagogue to be able to really latch on to this issue and convince, you know, older white people that young black people are coming to steal their stuff all over the country. It just didn't basically work. And Biden is still, if we believe the polls, is still about 10 points ahead of Trump and really there's there's been essentially no change in the race like the, every all the crazy shit that's happened this year, you know Biden has more or less been like seven to ten points ahead the entire time, uh, which is strange. So so yeah so yeah, the the person you're describing probably uh, it makes sense for him to uh, vote for Trump, um, but if there's if if we want to think of what that person cares about and if they care about you know they not being civil unrest uh, in the country, then I, I think it would make more sense to. You know, look at Biden and look at this whole let's cool things down, you know, thing uh, that I think Biden represents and yeah. not and not the let's rile everyone up and keep everyone on the edge of their seats and see what crazy thing's are gonna happen next thing that, that that Trump really embodies. You know, it's it's the reality TV thing. It's like what's he gonna say next? What's gonna happen next? Cliffhanger. That's an argument. So, something it crazy. Swing me.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I think you have to agree to disagree about that. Okay, well I would just say I mean I think the most kind of essential one of the, the one of like the most essential American political things is um, throw the bums out, and and you know we everyone hates those those crooks in Washington, and they're all they're all corrupt, and they're all in it for themselves. Blah blah blah. Throw the bums out, even though Congress gets reelected like ninety five percent every time. But we, we kind of sense like, you know, they they go down to the swamp and they get corrupted. I mean, Trump is a bum. Let's throw him out. I, I, I just think the, the incumbent gets credit or blame for almost everything that happens in the country during their time. Uh, Trump has by most measures done a subpar job and um, and Biden is an acceptable alternative. I think, like I said, Trump basically realized this when he realized the only way to win this thing was to make Biden seem senile and he wasn't able to do that. And so I think that's basically what's going to happen is that the, the bump okay. is going to get thrown out.
1: I recommend we move on. I think we have both stated our cases. <laughs> my case, by the way, is bracketed by my preface that I'm not announcing my own opinion. I'm simply trying to give voice to the idea that there is an election and there are two sides to the debate.
0: Right. Okay. So let's, let's, let's move on and let's go to a more open ended topic. So this is something that I've been thinking about listening to your show over the past few years and also in this time of, of a pandemic. And the question is um, what is college for? And so you've done a number of episodes, you know, about affirmative action about conservatives in the Academy um, about You know, how, what is happening on college campuses? Are this, have the students gone crazy? This kind of stuff. And, you know, I've been thinking, for some reason, my mind has been thrown back this year to my, my college days and what was, you know, why, you know, what, like, what is college for? Okay, this, this possibly, we can name a dozen things that are all true that college is for. And then since, because there's a pandemic and a lot of colleges are operating on some sort of, limited basis that they don't normally have, you know, what are are the things possibly that can be left behind? And people realize, oh, this was, we thought this was part of what college is for, but really, really it's not. So something would be like, I actually talked about this last time we talked, like all this, all the uh, varsity sports that colleges sponsor and sometimes things like sailing and crew and stuff that, you know, are not really popular or a lot of people outside of like Northeast prep schools don't participate in. And I, I know Stanford actually announced, I think at the very beginning of the pandemic, maybe it was unrelated, maybe they just took it as the excuse they were eliminating like a half dozen varsity sports, including like swimming and other ones. Brown, that have... is,
1: Brown is cutting back too on some of these more exotic sports,
0: right? I can't so, see so maybe
1: exactly what they are.
0: So so why is you know why is college for people to play sports? You know that if you really think about it, it, it's it's strange, and it's especially strange when it comes to like the NCAA and how colleges, big you know big state schools, are essentially the minor leagues for uh, the NFL and the NBA, like, why, why is that the case? It's so strange. Um, so are there, but a lot of that, you know, the college football is, it's happening to some extent. So I guess you can't kill college football, but, um, yeah, so what, what are the things that you think are like college should be for? And then is there something that like, maybe we're realizing college is not actually for?
1: Uh, those are, those are big questions. Uh, I guess the pandemic has thrown all of this into relief because we've suspended, It's like suspended animation. Everything is just kind of frozen and we're doing this remote learning and people are not face to face and they're not in residence. And so that takes away, you know, I don't know, two thirds or at least a half of what was going on in terms of the encounters and the social interaction and not just sports, but, you know, mixers and uh, clubs and enthusiasms of one kind or another and meeting people and developing relationships developing relationships with your professors, developing relationships with other students, things like that. That's all all been attenuated. I I guess I think of a few things. College is, in the first instance, getting an education, of course, as a professor. That's what I'm going to emphasize. You come in not knowing as much as you're supposed to know when you leave. You read books. You study stuff. You become uh, a masterful with respect to some particular areas of inquiry. You, you, You acquire an education. You get a sense of the what's been uh, thought and and written and and said about some of the great questions before us. And, you know, whether they be philosophy or they be in the humanities or they be in the sciences or mathematics or uh, social study or whatever, you, you know, so that's one thing. Another thing is it is an experience. It's four years in in campus. You're joining a club. You're you're becoming a part of this brand. You, you're an alumnus. You're, you're, you're being inducted into a, a little uh, kind of uh, a collectivity, a network, um, and uh, all that that entails. You know, um, so you're you're growing as a as a student. You're growing as a person along the intellectual dimension, but you're also growing along the personal dimension. But the other thing that I would mention is not just from the student's point of view. I'm a professor. I, I think what is it for? And and it's for expanding the frontiers of knowledge. It's for research. It's for asking important questions, the answers to which are not self-evident. It's for developing methods of inquiry. Um, It's for exegesis. It's for, you know, a kind of unearthing of, 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 uh, and and a careful re-narrating of what the history of thinking about particular questions may have been. Uh, For innovation, for uh, scientific discovery, uh, things of that sort, which is the rarefied, specialized you know, at the very, very frontiers of inquiry in the different fields, uh, the best uh, institutions cultivate uh, this kind of intellectual activity. So, so colleges are these treasures of inquiry. They're also these experiences for students and this bonding and this branding. Um, and they're also a place where kids are, are exposed to the best as can be ascertained. And there'll be argument about that. That's been thought and written uh, about the eternal questions of human existence, not to sound too flatter, you know, flowery. But, it, you know, now everything seems to be up in the air. Frankly, I'm hoping that normalcy will return. You want the Biden normalcy. I want the post-COVID normalcy. I, I want I want us to go back to the way we were. I don't know that we will ever do. I've said here in discussing COVID, be careful what you do because you may have a hard time stopping to do it. And we're now safety focused and our practices are being reshaped as time goes by. And this is not the last pathogen. I sure hope it is, but I'm pretty certain it's not five years, 10 years down the line. We're going to get hit by something else again. And we're, we're developing a kind of routine of how it is that we're reacting to these events and maybe we'll never go back to normalcy. And I, I think frankly that that has very large implications for the way that colleges. Operate. I mean, if everybody is getting their lecture by remote, I don't see why people need to bother with second rate lecturers, why they shouldn't all be uh, getting the benefit of hearing from the very, very best people. Uh, and it allows for a kind of uh, uh, competition in the marketplace for the attention of students, which might privilege the superstars. Uh, you know, you can see people making seven, eight figures being academics uh, at the frontier of their field who attract millions of people subscribing to the services that they have to offer and going over the heads of the universities. And, and you know, I mean, I, I think out loud, I don't know exactly how this would work, but it seems to me all bets are off if, in fact, people get accustomed, acclimated to the delivery of the intellectual part of college uh, without having to be attached to the physical
0: locale part of college. Right.
1: That, that strikes me as a completely different world.
0: Yeah, I, I I think the the vi- I mean the virus is, is obviously a challenge for every every sector of our lives and you know higher education is one of particular so I I actually just remembered a um so okay I there's a a woman I met uh, uh late last year she grew up in uh in I think Quebec and went to college in Montreal and then she came to New York and we are talking and she was saying she was like, what does it mean when someone goes to Oberlin? Like, why does everyone know what that means? (laughs) And and so I was trying to explain, like, oh, it's this very, like, liberal college, and, you know, there's lots of, like, activism there. And she was like, how does everyone know this? Like, everyone knows, everyone would be like, oh, he went to Yale, and everyone would be like, oh, Yale, yeah, we know what that means. And it was just totally alien to her. They don't have, so at least in her world, in, you know, (laughs) Francophone Canada or whatever, they don't have this. And she just went to, like, whatever uh, state school, and I think, and we're also talking about this, around the time when a lot of um, commencement uh, speeches or commencement events were being canceled because of the virus. And she was like, I don't even remember if I went to mine. I, I don't think I did, but maybe then I, I went to pick up the my degree, like the paper degree, but I don't really remember. Whereas like for Americans, it's like this huge thing. So there's just a lot of things in America that where college is just like this huge thing in, in the national consciousness. And then in other countries, even ones directly close to us, it's not – that big of a thing but like everyone does know or at least everyone everyone in a certain class knows what it means when you go to oberlin and yeah. and what the type of person or the stereotype of that type of person and yeah it's just like you know so much yeah. of of uh, you know child rearing uh involves uh, trying to direct people towards getting into an elite college at least in a certain class of people once again and yeah it's like one of the great national obsessions is is higher education and maybe in you know an, it's 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 different in other countries i don't know be, maybe because we're like ideally a classless society unlike you know uh, great britain or something and so we have this narrative that anyone can get a great education and like rise up through the ranks whereas in you know in the uk you like you'll always you'll always be you know um you know like your father was a butler or something and that's who you'll always be no matter No matter what you, what you do because of like your accent and the way you dress or something like that. Maybe I'm just pointing this out of my ass. But, um, but it seems like, you know, so we're, we're obsessed with college and we really care about it. And, you know, there's these giant industries about testing and prep and stuff and, and, you know, scandals involving paying people to, so that it seems like you're a varsity athlete, even though you're not paying like tens of thousands or even a million dollars to to get into one of these great schools. And then what is, then what does it mean if, you know, you're not actually going off to the lovely campus in New Haven, but you're like sitting in your parents' house still and getting all your classes through the computer. Is that the same thing? And yeah, so, I mean, something that you, I mean, you miss out on going to parties and and uh, hooking up with people who you want to hook up with and, you know, just uh, seeing all the beautiful architecture and uh, chilling out on the quad and all all these like classic classic things that, you know, it's like part of the American... Success story, or something that you're going to do all this, but then, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm just very confused about it all, and 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 the fact that the elite colleges cost like seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year at this point makes it so that at some point, especially if people are not able to go on campus and they're has, a, and if they're on campus, they need to like stay in their rooms all the time because of a communicable disease, then it starts to seem like what was, what is the point of all this? And I mean, a lot of, I mean, I went, to, I went to as viewers may know, I went to Yale, an elite college, and I think a lot of what, you know, I, what happened there, maybe I didn't fully realize it, is a lot of people, like, are kind of using it as a way to make connections with the other type of people who are eventually going to be in the, like, ruling elite of of the country, and so you can't do that over Zoom. You can't, you know, you, you're not going to join a frat over Zoom or something, and then 20 years later, you're your frat the guy who was in your frat is now like the vice president Goldman Sachs or something. Like that's that can't happen through this this system. I mean hopefully people will return to campuses and life will return to normal in some respects. But I mean I and 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 the other thing about this is, you know, I haven't even mentioned everything I've been talking about, I haven't mentioned academics. I mean, how much does academics actually matter (laughs) to the the college student? You know, there's the 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 guy who just wants to go there and, and drink a lot of beer or smoke weed or something and have a good time. And so academics don't particularly matter to him, but there's also the, you know, at elite schools, you can really pick or choose whether you want to make academics your focus and you'll still get the degree at the end. If you don't make academics your focus, because it's very hard to flunk out of the Ivy league schools. So you'll still have, you know, the pedigree, uh, whether or not you've got straight A's or, or straight C's. And actually one of the things as I've, I've been thinking back on my college days is that I think I studied too much. Um, you know, I wasn't, I was thinking like, maybe I would go to grad school, but I didn't end up going to grad school. I didn't, you know, I didn't go to any, um, professional school. And when I was in college, I just had this thought that like, (laughs) I need to get, I need to get at least a 3.5 GPA. And if I don't get a 3.5 GPA, that means I failed. And so if I got a B plus, that was a failure. And if I got an A minus, that means, okay, I satisfied. And then if I got an A good, but move on to the next thing. That was that, I mean, that kind of attitude is how you get into an elite school, is like always pressing yourself. Well, like looking back on it, I should have just like hung out more and taken it more easy because there was, there was no point in, in me trying to get a 3.5 from Yale because no one cares whether you get you a just, 3 or a
1: you, 3.5. You disappoint me because the measure of your success was not the number that came at the end. It was your – uh, familiarity with the books that we read during the course of the semester and the ideas contained within them well that's that 's true frankly, frankly, as a professor i'd much rather have somebody who flunked the exam but really really spent a lot of time with the books and just didn 't quite get it than to have somebody who was uh drinking beer and coasting because they were quite bright and had gone to a really good prep school and and were and knew how to fake it uh, you know right. because so, so I was the grade, the grade is not the most important thing it 's the experience. That academics are worthwhile, not because they gave you a number at the end of the day, but because they opened up a world that you otherwise wouldn't be familiar with, which would
0: change your life. So I mostly agree with that. So I was an English major. (laughs) And so I, you know, so you're given a lot of reading to do in college. And in some ways, it's almost impossible to do all the reading. So you kind of learn how to skim some certain things and fake it. Um, and, but I decided like, if I'm an English major, I might as well actually read all these books. Like I'm assigned Moby Dick. I might as well read every word of Moby Dick because what's the point of being an English major at Yale if I don't? So I did read every single word of Moby Dick and War and Peace and the Canterbury Tales, et cetera, et cetera. So I did all that. And I'm glad I did all that because at age 37, I don't know if I could go back and read Moby Dick right now without falling asleep because I just can't, can't do it anymore. So I'm glad I had that experience and had all these great professors, uh, who were teaching these great works of literature, Um, but uh, yeah, but at the same time, like I probably should have just phoned it in more in some of those other classes and not been obsessed with, I don't know, I guess I was too obsessed with grades, but kind of the system that produces, like I said, the system produces someone who can get into Yale is going to be obsessed with grades because unless you have some other strange circumstance, if you get like straight C's, you're not getting into Yale. Um, so that's who is like in the meritocratic, meritocratic, you know, system, you have to do really well in high school and have to do really well in your SATs to get into these elite colleges, and then, but then there's like some people there who maybe uh, you know their grandfather was so and so and so that's how they get in, or they're really good at throwing a basket, you know, throwing a football or something. That's how they get in. So I don't know. It's all it's all a confusion to me. And, um, I, but I think I mean one one other thing is like. Did you have any contact with Harold Bloom when you were at? You I, t- I took a, I, I took a seminar from Harold Bloom. I was. You can't I, do that anyplace else. You can't the do that anywhere now. Because Harold <laughs> Bloom is. You got to go to New Haven. Well, R.I.P. <laughs> Harold Bloom. You can't do that anywhere now because he passed away last year. But um, yeah, I know he did. But what I'm saying is, yes he's, that was you know, that kind was the resource that you're only going to find at an elite institution. I agree. That was a singular experience, and I have some funny stories from from that class, but um, and some <laughs> some memories that I will never forget. We Harold Harold Bloom, um. Is 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 gone sadly. Yeah. So there's certain you know very good professors and so forth. And I mean, I guess two things I would mention. One is that the grade I remember I was proudest of from my time was a B plus that I got in a um, major English poets seminar taught by an adjunct professor who was just like hard as hell, and he and he would not put up put up any. You know, any of the tricks, any of the bullshit that you could get away with when running a paper in high school. And so I got, it was a two semester course. I got a B the first semester and a B plus the second semester. And that B plus was the one I was proudest of. Wow. Um, and the other, the other, even though it pulled down your average. Exactly. Um, and yeah, that, so there's no way that anyone just glancing at my transcript would know that this is like one of the hardest classes I took and that I got a B plus. And then the other one was I had a really, really good professor who, um, I took three classes with him, English professor, and, um, you know, uh, five or so years after I graduated, I, I found that he had uh, left academia, and I think he hadn't gotten tenure, and instead of trying, you know, moving to, like, a second-tier uh, university or something, he he left, and he's written a couple books. I, I, I mean, I assume he's doing okay, but but he was really, if I'm thinking back, who was the best professor I had? It was, it was this guy who got drummed out of the system somehow, and I assume it had something to do with maybe his, the type of research he was doing. And it wasn't like at that all-star level that yeah it wants. To, and often, like assistant professors at these elite schools don't get tenure because they want to recruit superstars from yeah. uh, from all over. Um, but yeah, you know, I would I would take a class from from him again. But he's no, you know, he, he's not teaching. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's some system with online or something that can enable him to to do something and make some money, sort of teaching that way. But uh, you know, it is it is strange that the the main thing is supposed to be education. But then the second thing is supposed to be, like, original research, and then these things have been melded together in this, cra- in this crazy system such that the, orig- the people who are really good teachers are not always the really good original researchers or vice versa. So, yeah, so I, I don't know if you-, if you have any thoughts on that.
1: No, I, I agree with you that uh, it can happen uh, at the very rarefied places where everybody's scrambling to get tenure and to get recognition globally for their, their research that teaching takes a back seat. I've said in many tenure deliberations where the excellence of a person's teaching barely gets mentioned in the course of the deliberation because it's all about what the letters from other, you know, evaluators in the field, the specialized field of the candidate say about the quality of the candidate's research and the rank of the candidate relative to others in the field. Because, yeah, if you're a top 10, a top 20 department in any discipline, English or uh, physics or economics, uh you're only going to want to retain uh junior faculty who are going to be in the pantheon who going to place somewhere in the in the uh in the uh, assessment of who's at the frontier so uh and i i agree that this is a a problem i mean the provosts and presidents of all the elite colleges will have a speech that's ready made to address this concern they will have given it almost reflexively Many times in which they say, yes, teaching matters. We really care about teaching. We really care about teaching. But I think at the end of the day, sometimes teaching gets a short shrift in situations like what you, I think, are describing, which is an excellent teacher whose monograph didn't get published by a top university press and doesn't have critics saying it's the best thing since sliced bread. And they end up saying, no, we'll pass. The department decides not to promote this person because while they are an excellent teacher, the coin of the realm is mastery and and uh you know uh relative rank within the global assessment of who's on top uh in their field so uh that's why that's one reason why people might elect to go to uh Oberlin or a Middlebury or a Williams or an Amherst college or uh something like that or Haverford or Swarthmore. Uh, where they think that they're going to get outstanding teaching where, uh, office doors are going to be open and, you know, evening seminars after pizza where people talk on into the night about Moby Dick or, uh, you know, Dostoevsky or whatever. They think they're going to get that and they're going to get that with somebody who's really, 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 really good and has decided that an important part of what they do is teaching because they're at a mainly teaching Uh, College, uh, and that might be distinct from a Yale or a Brown or a Harvard or a Princeton, where in order to get tenure, the teaching will never be enough, no matter how good it is.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's—I mean, it is strange. Well, yeah. So there's the split between the liberal arts college and the research university. um, But then the the elite schools are kind of, you know, fancy themselves also giving giving you all the benefits of the liberal arts uh, college at a research university. And then maybe there's some people, some like high school seniors who are like, I want if they're studying some technical subject in STEM or something, you know, they they really want to go to a college where the professors are at the cutting edge of research. But that's probably not the, you know, in terms of education, that's not the main goal for for most things. I don't know if you, if I would want the people at the cutting edge of English literature to be <laughs> teaching me or or you know, people who are maybe a little bit back in the pack, um, because sometimes the things at the cutting edge in humanities are you know, 20 years later, it turns out they're a bunch of nonsense. So, um, so, so who knows, (laughs) you know, who knows about that? Um,
1: so, so where are you, I got to ask you, you're culturally determined over there. So where are you on the debate about postmodernism and, uh, you know, Derrida and Foucault and, uh, all of that kind of stuff, uh, in terms of literary theory uh, about which I know very little of, but I do know there's a fight. I gather Harold Bloom, had a, a, a different view than uh, some of the more uh, um, postmodernist types but I'm asking you.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny, I, you know, I didn't know that Yale was a place that was associated with, the Yale English Department was a place that was associated with postmodernism until after I graduated. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think we really did, any, did anything with that, and I think maybe, you know, there's uh, Yale, I, I don't know if there's a standard, has a English department and a literature department, and literature is more works in translation. But I think the people who are more into the theory stuff move towards literature, and people who were more the uh. old fashioned stayed in English. I didn't know this at the time, um, uh. but so I stayed in English, and so yeah, we I never read any literary theory that I that I can remember assigned in class, and so it was you know it was probably like New Criticism essentially. It was like deep. You know, deep te- deep uh, reading of the texts. Um, there was one professor who, yeah. So I, I remember I had a professor who ta- who did a new historicist reading on the Canterbury Tales, which I- which I found fascinating. He knew all the stuff about you know what was happening during the period and like yeah uh, stuff in technology and stuff and how this is related to the text. So I thought those were interesting, but I-, I I was not getting like critical theory or whatever, and didn't really know what those things were until after I graduated. So maybe that was. So strange. We just read, I and mean, we just read the books and talked about them. Um, and there was some, what I saw, what I realized afterwards, there was some effort to sort of a, having a diversified curriculum. And of course, I took on American literature that included, you know, like, uh, slave narratives and, uh, Cabeza de Vaca, who was a Spanish explorer who, like, got lost and, like, walked across, <laughs> walked across, uh, America, the Americas in, like, 1520 or something and wrote a narrative about it. So I read some stuff that was not quite in the canon of dead white guys, but then, you know, took this major English poets class, which was all dead British uh, poets, uh, for for two semesters. So it was probably a more traditional uh, sort of thing. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I've, uh, I don't know. I, I'm interested in learning about everything, and so I, I, I'm hesitant to say like, oh, this is, you know, I'm shut shut this down over here. Or this is all bullshit or something. But um, it does. Uh, yeah, it, it was maybe maybe it was. Somehow, the instruction I got in you know 2001 to 2005 was like what you would have gotten in 1965 um, before you know postmodernism moved moved <laughs> into the academy for whatever reason. Um, let's see. Okay, so do you have time for one quick more to- one quick more topic? Or should we ra- or should we wrap up here?
1: Uh, I would prefer to wrap up, but uh, because just so I had scheduled something in 15 minutes, and I want to look over my notes.
0: Okay, so let's let's wrap up here, uh, Glenn. Thanks for coming on. Um, Welcome, and of course, fun. you're the host of the Glenn Show, which everyone knows uh, who's watching this probably knows. <laughs> uh, you can find on YouTuber, uh, subscribe uh, on your podcast feed, and, you, and if there's any new viewers in this uh, this particular program, um, you can subscribe to this Culture Determined uh, on YouTuber, your podcast feed, or whatever. Oh, and I actually have so I, I so the last episode I did uh, that posted was with Robert Wright. And we talked about whether or not Biden would win. And I said Biden would win. And a lot of the commenters on YouTube thought I was a, a big dum-dum for saying that. And so I I posted a couple days later uh, a challenge saying if there's anyone out there who thinks that Trump is going to win uh, and they want to debate me on this topic on the show, uh, contact me. Over Twitter, a direct message, and no one contacted me. So I don't know if people can <laughs> see it, or if or if all the commenters are just a bunch of cowards who can't, uh, who don't want to come on uh, blogging a blogging show. So, so, but I'm issuing the challenge once again. If you if you think Trump is definitely going to win, you think I'm a big dumb dumb for thinking Biden is going to win, uh, send me a direct message. It's A R Y H C W on Twitter. And uh, if you seem like a non crazy person, I will have you on this show. So so that I'm you know open to hearing uh, from people who disagree with me. Uh, and, uh, I'm not just, um, you know, I, I don't have, um, you know, Trump derangement syndrome. I don't just say orange man bad. I'm, I'm ready to debate the issues and, uh, and so on and so forth.
1: As you did ably in this conversation here
0: today. Well, thank you, Glenn. And so, um, that's a good place to end it. So thank you to our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time.